It has just gone three minutes after seven o'clock on Coffee FM 97.0. A very warm welcome to the second hour, which is the final hour of the interview. My name is Ace Muloy. And at this time, we get into hashtag books according to Refilwe, which is where we're having our book club on the airwaves. And remember, I did say that we're celebrating Freedom Month. And our way of celebrating Freedom Month is to look at the literary representation of our struggle. How exactly have some of our veterans, some of our heroes been written about? And are we agreeing with that kind of narrative? And Today we're looking at the life and times of Stephen Bantubigo through the lens of Professor Tolela Manu and also going to be juxtaposing this with I Write What I Like, which is Steve Biko in his own words. And I do believe that most of us that have interacted with the works of Stephen Bantubigo have read this book that's called I Write What I Like. It's a book that has helped us so many times. I remember when I was growing up, I was living in a village that has only black people. So when I came to this institution, it was my first time being exposed to um, the coexistence of black and white and when I came I was not really that conscious of myself as a black person which means I lived life every day as it came and I never really bothered about the, the kind of presence that I have in any particular space and coming here interacting with so many other people from a systemic point of view always getting that reminder sort of led me into trying to find some kind of philosophy some kind of poor black kind of spirituality and I was introduced to the writings of Stephen Bantubiko that helped me so much in not only asserting myself but also even understanding the kind of identity that I have as a person. So today we're having that conversation and we're asking you the question, 25 years into democracy, how has the black condition improved? If any at all, you can go to our social chat. CFM 97 using hashtag the interview. Also the WhatsApp line to use is 079 Let's welcome Rifilwe as we begin our book conversation. Welcome Rifilwe. Thank you for that warm welcome, Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi to everyone who's tuned in. <laughs> okay. I see you smiling for the camera. So you oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. The people don't, at home don't know. There's a, cat, there's a photographer in the studio. So I think Ace and I are both a little startled. So you but don't yeah. know who to look <laughs> I don't. Because there's a <laughs> there was camera that person at the side and then there's also me. Okay, <laughs> let, let's get into it. All right. Professor Kolelaman. Yes. Tell us more about him. Okay, so Professor Kolelaman, this guy is a big deal, actually. So I'm going to take you through, you know, his accolades and you'll see exactly why. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the most fitting person to have written this book. First of all, he's the Associate Professor at UCT for the Sociology Department. He has held fellowships at Harvard University. He holds a PhD from Cornell University. He's an internationally respected political analyst and commentator. He was a distinguished fellow and executive director at the Human Sciences Research Council in Washington, D.C. He's a regular communist, columnist for Business Day, The Weekender, and Sunday Independent. He authored and co-authored six books, including The Meaning of Mandela, To the Brink, The Democratic Moment, this book that we're going to review today, Steve Biko, A Life. And get this, the Sunday Times says that has, has described Professor Ngmangu as possibly the most prolific public intellectual in South Africa. That's a very heavy CV. It's actually, it's actually very little. I had to sort of <laughs> dumb it down. So you took some stuff yes, out. Yes, his CV is actually very long. I really had to, you know, make it very short so that we could get into what we need to get into. I think it's one of those profiles that make you wonder. It does. When I read this, I thought, you, uh, guys. Start evaluating your life. Yeah, no, definitely. 
Definitely. You know, but deep calls unto deep. I mean, when we get into the life of Steve Biko, we'll know exactly why the two are so alike. And another thing people might not know is they actually grew up together in the same neighborhood. Um, Professor Magnus' brother was actually Steve's friend. Mm -hmm. So there's not a fitting person, a more fitting person to give, you know, more information about. So he's not writing about a stranger that he got to know about through history. He's talking about someone that was the brother next door. Yes. Now, Professor Manu is also involved with the Steve Biko Foundation. Yes. What kind of work does the foundation do? Um, so basically, the Steve Biko Foundation, the vision of the foundation is to be the promoter of the values that Steve Biko lived by, well, and died for. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, when we're going to get into it, um, Steve Biko was literally the father of blank, the black consciousness movement. And, you know, their work is mostly focused on reducing in- inequality and strengthening democracy, as well as promoting identity, culture, and values. Now, when you're talking about reducing inequality, yeah. and, and I think uh, this is how we get into the book discussion overall. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Sibiko was known for as part of advocating for black consciousness was to practically go into communities and get things done for yes. those communities. Yes. I think there's a hospital or a clinic that was called Zanembilo and many other projects that he was involved. Tell us more about how he was able to take the theory of black consciousness and basically materialize it so that it benefits the people on the ground. Okay, so basically, um, one of the BCPs that he actually, one of the programs that he started was the Hinsberg Educational Fund. And, you know, as you read the book, you'll find that he was very, you know, passionate about education. It's no secret that education itself is empowering. And this is what he actually lived by. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a crash that, you know, had died over, uh, you know, a number, uh, you know, over time. And he came and he revived that crash that had been started by other people. And, you know, I just love the fact that he... It was not just for the students. He didn't only, you know, um, cater for students in terms of education, but even the children. So education was an ongoing thing for him. Like you mentioned, the, the clinic that, you know, he was involved in, Zanempilo itself and the healthcare at the time. He was actually, you know, a steady hand in that as well. And he was working with the likes of Bo, uh, Dr. Mampela Rampi. Yes. And I want <laughs> us to... It's a big figure. I want us to, to, to talk about the kind of circle that he kept. Mm. And, and how in sync they were, talking about the likes of Professor Bani Pijana, who is, mm. in fact, the one who founded the saying, Black Men, you, you are on, on your you own. Are on your own. Uh, what kind of cycle did he keep? And was it always the kind of cycle that is ideologically inclined to what he believes in? Okay, so um, Bani Pijana, as you just Pijana, as you just mentioned, was part of your circle. He also was sort of a mentor to him. Even though there were clashes here and there because Steve and Bunny were actually opposites. Steve had a clownish thing to him, even though he was an intellect. And mm-hmm. Bunny was more of the intellect. He was straightforward, strategic. He was very serious. You know, even in his, in his thinking, he put Steve on the road. Um, Steve himself, you know, he had other people like, you know, Professor, uh, like, you know, Mr. Stubbs, mm-hmm. who was also part of the church, which was a big movement, you know, and, and also that in itself, you know, features in the book a lot. Um, he wasn't only for black people. Uh, in the book, if you read in the book, you'll find that Steve also had relations with white people as well. I know a lot of people might think, okay, no, because he was, you know, for anti, it was an anti-apartheid activist. He was only amongst the blacks. No, he actually wasn't. Um, the UCM, you know, the university movement at the time, mm-hmm. he, he actually delved in them and he actually wanted to have a, a real relationship with them. He asked them to open their doors to black people because there were no black people in the leadership of the UCM at the time. So he went to them and actually wrote multiple letters to them to get pe- black people to be in the leadership. And he seemed to have an interest also in the church. Yes. And the role of the church in the broader movement yeah. of fighting against apartheid, but also even of race relations. Yeah. 
take us through his politics of faith. So, Steve Biko, um, he was not against Christianity, and I actually need to highlight this to a lot of people, um, because he himself grew up in an Anglican home. He was very willing to engage with the UCM, like I mentioned, and try to bridge the gap between the blacks and the whites. Um, he challenged them the most because there were no people, no black people in the leadership of the UCM. And you must imagine that, you know, this is a church movement led by white people, but there are no, and the majority is black people. It's led by white people, but the majority are black. So obviously you would think that there are black people that are supposed to be in the leadership, which there were none. So he fought hard against that and tried his best to, you know, bridge the gap. And I'm going through this other review that was written by Andilem Nutama talking about the book that we're talking about. Mm. And he's actually saying that Steve Biko was a very heavy kind of philosopher, very complex, mm. someone you can just have an interaction with now and you claim that you know him. Basically, you couldn't understand Steve Biko just by <laughs> a single tweet. Yeah. That's what he's saying. How successful has uh, Professor Tolela Manu been in trying to decode the very myth that is Steve Biko? And uh, do you think the book gives you some facts about him that you didn't know about before you read the book? Most definitely. And that's what I love about books. The fact that, you know, especially stories, you know, biographies, if I can, autobiographies and biographies, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we always need to find things that we didn't know before. I mean, then what is the point of learning about someone's life? And there are a number of things, actually, that I didn't know about him. Um, firstly, he aided in solving the unemployment problem indirectly um, because the BCP sponsored home industries that manufactured leather goods as well as cloth garments. The industry, many people might not know this, but the industry employed 50 people in 1974. Further on, it went on to employ 70 more by the border of churches, which, which was actually a collaborator. He then revived the local crèche, which I mentioned earlier. This further emphasizes his view on the importance of education. Um, this one is a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit of spice, just to add on to this, because I know people are very serious because it's a political figure. He was also a skirt chaser, guys. <laughs> and we'll get into that a bit later into the show. But it's mentioned in the book that um, Nsiki, who he was married to, was unhappy with his many relationships that he had with other women. Mampela Rampele being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, I also found out that, you know, he had a relationship with a lady called Lorraine Tabane, who bore his child. So eventually, unfortunately, Steve and Ziggy got divorced in the end because he was really just everywhere. Um, and the fourth thing I also noted was Hinsberg Educational Fund. He actually funded, founded this fund. A lot of people need to make note of that. Um, students were able to go to university because he's, he founded this fund. And the last and the most important for me that stood out the most was the fact that he actually had no interest at all in politics to begin with. Um, his brother was how he actually got into politics. You know, his brother had been trying to get him involved for the longest time. But in one of the quotes in the book, his brother says that, you know, the police were able to do what I was unable to do for the longest time. They were able to do in a second what I was unable to do in the longest time. So um, it was only up until he was he realized the harsh realities of what was going on around him that he actually be became involved in politics. Now, you said something about Hulelik Samose. Nasa Hamfel. And I remember there's this pocket book that's been published by Jakana Media. Mm. And it, it, it's quite um, it's a brief biography on Bigot written by Professor Bani Pichan. Yeah. One of the things that he says is that Steve Bigot didn't understand 
this whole thing of platonic relationships where mm. you can visit me at my flat <laughs> and we just cuddle and nothing else happens. So we just smoke hardly. <laughs> we don't touch each other and then I call it Does that you, actually ever happen? You go back <laughs> home. It does happen. Okay. I'll introduce you to the kinds of spaces that <laughs> I frequent. <laughs> <laughs> too soon, eh? It's too soon. <laughs> All right. I'll get notes on our back. Yes. What was Steve because gender politics? Okay. So, um... I personally um, feel like <sighs> this was actually a very controversial stance for me, to be very, very honest. First of all, Steve Biko and women. At some point, he got involved with a very heated. Ar- he got involved in a very heated argument with one of the women who was in the organizations, and instead of okay, she called him a sexist, and instead of you know defending himself. He sort of overshadowed that and he went on to, you know, he put her her statement aside, but he didn't actually, you know, um, challenge that statement. And he went on to say, what about your racist friend? She called him a sexist and she and he didn't even he overlooked it, actually. Mm -hmm. He didn't even challenge it. And for me, it got me thinking that, you know, could it be true that you were really a sexist? And I felt like even reading the book that he actually was a sexist because um, even when I was looking at, you know, his circle of friends and the people he was even engaged with. It seemed like there were more males than females, to be pretty honest. Um, and I think this is what many black women are now saying when yeah. they problematize the statement, black men, you are on your own, because yes. they're asking the question, but what about the black woman? Yes. And, and I like the example that you gave us of being accused of being sexist and you coming back and saying, but what about, what about the about race issue? Yeah. Because this is what is happening right now in our current discourse, mm. where you find that black women are talking about um, intersectionality, talking mm. about feminism, and black men are countering what they are saying mm. by raising the race issue, yes. which is now the, the question of, are you black first before you are a woman, yeah. or are you a woman first before, before you are black? black? But you can mm. be both, because those are identities of marginalization that yes. you cannot really undress yourself off. Now, yeah. what I'm trying to get to is, how do we get into the space of black consciousness without negating the questions of womanhood? Mm. And how can we influence black men in political spaces mm. to also see the question of gender is equally important compared to the question of race and not sort of have an, a hierarchy of which one comes mm. first, reflecting back at that moment of Steve Biko, where instead of accepting the question of womanhood, of sex, of gender, he went for the race question instead. Yeah. So how, 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 do, how do we navigate that, that, that kind of you know, relationship mm. between the two? I think because um, gender in itself is politics on its own. Even today, you know, it's it's no secret that we live in a very patriarchal society. Um, and even today, politics on its own is seen as a man's world. Mm-hmm. So much so that when women enter the field of politics, they're seen as a threat. And I don't know what for. And it's, it's really sad that as women, you need to prove yourself 10 times more than a man. Because with a man, it's already proven that, okay, no, but he'll succeed anyway. But as a woman, you sort of need to really show that... You've got a bit, you know, you've got a bit of testosterone in you that you don't really have, you know, that kind of thing. So I think um, it's a war. It's an unending war, to be pretty honest, you know, and I can't say, you know, there's any particular way because it's still a fight that we're still fighting even today. And look at, you know, when Steve Biko passed on. It's been years now. So it's still a war that we're still fighting even today. Yes, there is, you know, representation of women, even in parliament. You know, we're going at a steady pace, but still, there's still loads to be done, honestly. And this theory or philosophy of black consciousness Uh has become some kind of a contested terrain in black radical spaces. 
because whether we like it or not, the same way we're dealing with Christianity and we're trying to see how we can contextualize it to our material conditions, black consciousness itself would be null and void if it were to speak to us at a theoretical level but doesn't speak to the kind of things that we go through. Now, reflecting on the black condition as of now Mm. and uh, the extensive nature uh, to which Steve Biko went at dealing with the, 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 the intricacies of being black and the experiences of being black, how would you classify or characterize the black condition now, 25 years into democracy? And do you think Steve Biko would be proud of the kind of advances that we've made? All right. So um, as a black person myself, obviously I'm taking the stance from the view of a black person. I wouldn't say not much has changed, um, but we can, I feel like we can move faster. But of course there are other structures, you know, that are, that are involved there's corrupt government officials of course we need to take account of that um but as black people things haven't changed much you still find you know that there are people living in horrible conditions in the rural areas and you know it's only at times like these and i know i'm not supposed to talk about you know (laughs) politics and elections and all of that but you find that during times during election time or closer to election time then only you start seeing okay now the government is moving okay now roads are being constructed only then does it is it only, and, and you know, it, 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 it makes me wonder, is it only because of elections coming closer that, you know, officials who have the power start seeing that, okay, no, now it's time to better the future for our kids. Mm-hmm. Even in schools, you know, you hear still of children who go to schools and even the schools are damaged. Like books aren't delivered on time, you know, in schools. Children as young as, what, seven, they don't know how to read. They go into high school not knowing how to read. They get to university, it's a crisis. They don't know how, they don't know, they can't, you know, get to the next level because they don't know how to read. And it's a problem that should have been faced when, the, when, when they were still in primary school. You know, and obviously, the biggest one, unemployment. Oh, my word, unemployment is such a huge problem. You know, um, we're asking the government for help, but then we're told again, no, make your own opportunities. You know, you need to start your own businesses. But then when we come and you ask for funding, we're still not funded. So it, it really makes me wonder what exactly is going on, especially with our democracy. Is it really what Steve Biko fought for or is it just, you know, a, a front? And the major conundrum, I would I'd put it that way, that comes with the analysis you've just given us is that we have a black government. Yes. Now, it would seem that it's possible for someone to be black and not be black conscious. <laughs> In essence, what I'm saying is that you may not necessarily espouse the kinds of conditions that Steve Biko talks about to qualify yourself as someone that's aligned to BCM as a movement. Yes. Just in the same way you can be in Africa and not necessarily be for the agenda of the African yes. Renaissance and many other things. To what extent does Professor Manugo, in giving us the basic tenets, of what constitutes a black conscious black person from a spirituality point of view, but also even the outlook of how you engage with your material conditions. So he goes into, you know, basically us as being black people. But then in the book, you find that he he speaks more from a place of, I don't know what the word is, it what the word for it is. To be quite honest, but you know, he he basically covers the condition as a black person. You know, speaking about black consciousness and how you need to show that you ha- you are proud of being black, not just 
as you know a theory but actually start living it out so that it doesn't become just something of oh yes I'm black but I'm black and I'm proud and I'm not just black for myself but I'm also helping other people around me mm-hmm. so black black consciousness actually it's 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 very close tied to ubuntu because you know I don't think anyone knows the principle of ubuntu better than black people do to be honest and one of the definitions that he gives in the other book I write what I like is yeah. that um, he explains black consciousness as an inward-looking yeah. process, which means you have to sort out the the demons and the mess mm-hmm. within you first before you can project. Because most of the times what we do is that we project the black insecurities that we have instead of dealing with them and understanding ourselves. Mm-hmm. For example, if someone were to say, I bleached my skin so that I can assimilate to the white space, why are you not starting first from a point of saying, why exactly do I feel like I need to do Bleach that? My skin, yeah. And then you identify those stumbling blocks to your black pride and then you deal with them from a theoretical, from a spiritual, from an emotional point of view and then you are sorted before you can project that kind of insecurity on a grand scale yeah. of you know, appearing in public having bleached your skin and all those things. But I mentioned the word that is very central to the theory that Big has been advancing which is assimilation yes. which differs quite significantly from integration. Yeah. This is the University of the First State. Mm-hmm. You have black, you have white. And uh, somewhere someone might characterize the space as having two nations. Yes. You have the ones that go to the Shimla Park. Yes. To watch rugby. Mm. And then you have the ones that go to football matches. Yes. To watch soccer. But most of the times you'd find that the ones that go to watch rugby are always diverse. Mm. And the ones that go, go to watch, to watch soccer. soccer are only black. Yes, yes. And that speaks to the difference between integration and assimilation. Yeah. Because it's easier for a residence prime to get first years to go to a rugby match. Mm. But it's very difficult from, for someone from Mario Lane to tell the first years as to why they should go and watch football. Yeah. And that's just an example of integration versus assimilation. Yes. Having been a student here and having lived in this city, been born in this city, yes. would you say we are managing as black people to influence the space as catalysts or we get influenced and eventually have to assimilate? I feel like we really get influenced and end up having to assimilate. Honestly, um, <laughs> it's a struggle that's been going on for years. When we will get to where we need to get to, I don't know. I really don't know. Is it something that's in the system? Definitely. Or are we going through our own phase of wanting to get the piece of the pie from a bus's side of view? And then, you know, a lot of people would say, no, it's time to eat. I'll be black and proud, yes, when I'm dead. And I'm an ancestor. Because you'll consult me and say it's black culture. So I'll be proud then. But at this point, mm. we need to eat the money. I don't care about the school. Yeah. How do we, in, at a practical level, as a leader in government, and I'm listening right now, and I want to know how can black consciousness play a role in instrumentally leading me to guiding policies mm. and programs from government that benefit poor black people? Yeah. How, how can I apply that? How can I be black conscious and in leadership? And how will you know? <laughs> that Ace Muloy is a black conscious president or premier or MEC? First of all, you would have to make it clear that you are black conscious. Second of all, I really feel like we need to be more forceful with it because I feel like we're just doing things by the way. 
to be pretty honest. Um, as a leader, you need to engage as much as possible. Force yourself in these structures. You know, um, obviously from, you know, if someone else is, is not willing, there's nothing you can do about it. But you on your own, you need to force yourself into these structures as much as you can. So I really would, I really would say that you need to force yourself as much as you can. And someone will also counter that and say, Rifilo, I've forced myself into those kinds of spaces. Mm. And when I do and I assert my black pride, I'm told I'm being racist yeah. and divisive. <laughs> so how do we teach other people about black consciousness and what it represents so that it's not perceived to be a racist kind of mm. theory or doctrine? I think with people, um, understanding is the most important thing. Um, <laughs> and I just got a signal right here in the studio, like you're on on the ball, girl. Yeah, you're on fire. <laughs> All right, so um, let me make an example. I am black and you are white. Um, we need to start sitting down and having these conversations. I know sometimes people are afraid to have these conversations because they're very sensitive, but we need to get, get over the sensitivity of the conversation because our democracy is waiting for us to act. So you need to tell people that you are black. Obviously, they know this, but you need to tell them that as a black person, this is how I grew up. This is why you can't say this in front of black people because... This is the kind of pain it reminds me of. You need to start explaining things to people so that they can understand. As a white person also, when you hear black people talking about things, don't brush it off. Don't say, no, but you're using, you know, the race card. Keep quiet and listen and try and understand where they're coming from. You know, we are raised in totally different worlds. But understanding is the most critical principle in all of this. I think when, you know, we get partnership from, partnership from both ends, then only will, will we start moving. We really need to get people who are willing from both races, honestly. Don't tell us to get over apartheid. Yes, yes. Because you still haven't gotten over the Anglo-Boa war. Yes. You still don't want to speak English yes. because it represents the kind of pain your forefathers went yes. through. Mm. So if the Anglo-Boa war came before apartheid mm. and you still can't get over the Anglo-Boa war, who are you to tell us to get over apartheid, mm. which has not even ended from a systemic point of view? 28 minutes yeah. after 7 o'clock. Rafael is going to be giving us some of the themes. In fact, not the themes because I think we've covered a whole lot of the themes unless we've missed something. But we're going to get the themes and then you're going to get the book rating. And lastly, you're going to be getting our book rating. And then on the other side of half past seven, remember I told you, hashtag UFS graduation 2019. What exactly goes into an effective preparation for a job? Interview. It's Cops FM 97.0. Welcome to the fair. Welcome to the fam. This is Copsy FM 97.0. He told her that, you know, he, you know, a friend of his invited him to church and now he's saved and he's also on this new spiritual journey with the Lord. And that's where the sparks flew because actually she had prayed for God to make him and her work together. Because she told God that, you know, I really want to date this guy. I really hope, I really want this guy to be my husband. Lord, if you can fix it. I can look at the hormones. Balance his hormones. It's other things. <laughs> my chief father. Because <laughs> he can do all things. I like you know, I got a fornication in that. Muluki, Sekonya, now, no. Your Kofi FM.
30 minutes after 7 o'clock, Refilwe, what are some of the themes that we can find in the book and then also the rating and the criterion you used as well as the book reading? Can also. Alright, so the first theme and the most obvious theme is the BCM, the Black Consciousness Movement, which is still alive even today because it will always be something that, you know, is ongoing. For as long as we live, for as long as we black people live, black consciousness will be a thing that goes on. The BCPs that he founded... Um, his controversial death. Now, he died in detention, but I know that, you know, the police lied, well, the Minister of Justice at the time lied about his death and he said that he died from a hunger strike, but we know this isn't true. Um, he had, he suffered from a brain hemorrhage and unfortunately, this is how he died and they took him to hospital late also, but anyway. And the last theme is his legacy, the Steve Biko Foundation, which I spoke about earlier on in the show. If you didn't hear it, please listen to the podcast. That's where you'll find it. The rating. Hmm. What an interesting time to be alive. <laughs> I gave this book an amazing 9 out of 10. <laughs> there's supposed to be like a... I feel like there's supposed to be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did no, you, you, you gave it a 9 out of 10. Yes. Which means it's a really quite incredible book. And yes. I know you'll tell us why you gave it 9 out of 10. I'm just interested in where the one went. Because I have a feeling... <laughs> It was taken away by the pentatropic nature and tendencies, <laughs> and tendencies of the comrade. Yeah, I was pretty, I was really like pretty disappointed in the comrade to learn that I'm going to do comrade, penti, chaser, You were busy, chow, comrade. We shall chow this one point from you. <laughs> Give you nine out of ten. All T- right. Take us through the ratings quickly and then mm. the reading. All right, so the criteria was as follows. The spelling and the grammar, I expected nothing less because obviously this is a professor. Even if he wasn't, when you write a book, we're expecting the best and he gave us exactly that. You know, the second reason was because of the educational value. Like I said before, there are things I didn't know about Steve Biko that I found out after. And, you know, it also gives you historical education. The third reason was because it's age appropriate. Parents, please allow your kids to read struggle books. Um, these are our heroes. We really need to start letting our kids read these books. My 2000, I hope you're listening. Um, the book was impactful. That's another reason why I gave it a 9 out of 10. It's concise. The chapters don't drag on. It's not too long. Um, the presentation of the book. This is a new one, actually. Um, I was looking at the book and the saying always de- you know, always goes that don't judge a book by its cover. But, you know, I was looking at this book and I was thinking, this is amazing. We've seen some really Awfully presented books, but this is stunning. You know, um, the font, everything, the cover, the forward was done by Nelson Mandela. If you get into the book, you'll see that. Even at the back, everything was perfect. Um, the writing style. I love that the author doesn't deviate from, you know, writing as the first person or the third person. He sticks to his writing style. Um, I love that there's a brief on mentioning of the characters. Each character was mentioned very briefly. He didn't drag on. Sometimes, you know, you get lost in other books. That Who is this person? Why is he taking so long to write about this person? This person is not even the main character. I love that he kept it at the main character. Um, and I love also the fact that it included plenty of detail. You know, with books, sometimes there's missing detail. They're just question marks. Sometimes you ask yourself, okay, what's going on? Why was it left missing like this? But this, it got straight to the point. Like I said, this is a stunning 9 out of 10. And that's why I gave it why I gave, what I gave it. And you're going to read for us so that we understand and we give the verdict for yes, ourselves. Yes, yes, yes. For why we feel a mm. standing nine out of ten. All right. Skampa, I'm more than one independent. All right. It becomes more necessary to see the truth as if it is if you realize that the only vehicle for change are these people who have lost their personality. The first step, therefore, is to make the black man come to himself, to pump 
back life into his empty shell, to infuse him with pride and dignity, to remind him of his complicity in the crime of allowing himself to be misused, and therefore letting evil reign supreme in the land of his birth. This is what we mean by an inward-looking process. This is the definition of black consciousness. This is Coxie FM.